Major support for Carolina Business Review provided by Colonial Life, providing benefits to employees to help them protect their family, their finances, and their futures. High Point University, the premier life skills university, focused on preparing students for the world as it is going to be. And Sonoco, a global manufacturer of consumer and industrial packaging products and provider of packaging services with more than 300 operations in 35 countries. In a moment, we'll talk again with the former governor of South Carolina on this program 20 years ago. In a moment, he and his firm won the Nobel Peace Prize for combating world hunger in 2020. An executive profile with the Honorable David Beasley starts now. Gratefully acknowledging support by Martin Marietta, a leading provider of natural resource-based building materials, providing the foundation upon which our communities improve and grow. Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina, an independent licensee of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Association. Visit us at SouthCarolinaBlues.com. The Duke Endowment, a private foundation enriching communities in the Carolinas through higher education, health care, rural churches, and children's services. On this edition of Carolina Business Review, an executive profile featuring David Beasley, Executive Director of the World Food Program. Twenty years ago when our guest was on this program, it was a different world politically and in general. We are glad to have him back. He is former governor of South Carolina, but also the executive director of the United Nations World Food Pro Program. We, we welcome the Honorable David Beasley. Your Honor, welcome and thank you so much. Thank you, Chris. It's great to be with you. Governor, uh, in 2020, uh, the World Food Program, as well as yourself, were honored with the acknowledgement of the Nobel Peace Prize for bringing, for, for, uh, for combating world hunger. How did that acknowledgement give you leverage or inform what is going on now and how you address the Ukraine situation? You know, one of the things that I had been uh, expressing dismay about uh, for several years was the media's obsession, uh, whether you loved or hated Trump, it was 95% of the media covers Trump, 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 or Brexit, 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 or COVID, COVID, COVID. And we were not getting the space to let the world know of all the hunger and poverty and destabilization was taking place. And so when we got that phone call about the Nobel Peace Prize, it was a game changer. It brought the attention to the world. And I think the Nobel Peace Prize committee was doing two things. I think it was saying, hey, number one, thank you, World Food Program, for what you're doing to use food as a weapon of peace, of bringing stability to nations around the world. And number two, they were sending a message, world, wake up. The worst is yet to come. Therefore, we want to use this Nobel Peace Prize forum and platform to really help accelerate the message that the world needed to, to hear. In fact, it made a, a dynamic difference. And as you can see today, world leaders are talking about not just Ukraine, but the impact Ukraine's going to have on the hunger problem around the world and what it means in terms of death, starvation, destabilizations, and mass migration by necessity. Governor, you, you, you said in regards to Ukraine and the current uh, humanitarian crisis, if you will, in that, you said it's, it could create 
a catastrophe on top of a catastrophe and beyond anything we've seen since World War II. Is, is that avoidable? It was avoidable because it's man-made conflict. Anytime you have man-made conflict, it's avoidable in my opinion. In fact, when you look at uh, the last five years, when I took this role at the World Food Program, uh, there were 80 million people marching towards starvation. Not chronic hunger, that's a different discussion. Shock hunger. Well, that was primarily man-made conflict. The number went from 80 to 135 right before COVID. Well, why? Man-made conflict coupled with some climate shocks around the world. Then the number went from 135 to 276, and that was COVID economic ripple effect around the world. And so right before Ukraine, and I mean, right before it, I was already messaging around the world. We have a perfect storm. We have conflict, climate, and COVID. And we are running into significant problems around the world. And we're going to see famine. We're going to see destabilization of nations. And we're going to see mass migration if we don't get on top of this. Pricing was spiking from fuel. Pricing was spiking already from for commodities. And shipping costs were already jumping up. Then on top of that, comes Ukraine. And Ukraine is not just about inside Ukraine, the global impact ISCO had, because it is the breadbasket of the world. And it's dynamically going to devastate countries and poor people around the world. How do, how do you remediate this? The World Food Program and yourself announced an initiative recently around this, but unpack that a little bit. I don't want this to be too leading of a question, sir, but how, how do you get to that directly? Well, there's a couple of things here. First, as Ukraine itself, what do we need to do to help the Ukrainian people? You're seeing four or five million people leave as refugees, and they're being met uh, on the borders by loving strangers, giving shelter, giving food, giving hope. They're out of harm's way. You actually could say they're the lucky ones. But inside Ukraine, you still have 40 million people that you need supply chains, uh, commercial industry to still work so you, people can get food. What we at the World Food Program are doing are coming inside. We are already reaching a million. We will reach two and a half million this month, four million next month, six million the next month after that, depending upon the necessary resources. Now, having said all that, what about the external impact that the Ukraine war will have? Because they produce, they meaning Ukraine, produce about four, mm -hmm. enough food to feed 400 million people. 30% of all the wheat in the world comes from Russia and Ukraine. 20% of all the maize comes corn, comes from uh, Russia, Ukraine. 40% of all the fertilizer base uh, comes from Belarus and Russia. 80, about 80% of sunflower cooking oil comes from Ukraine and Russia. And so when you pull that out of the market, you not only are going to have a pricing problem, you're going to have an availability of food problem. Now, let me break that down a little bit because you're at the planting season right now for Ukraine, for corn. Well, guess where all the farmers are? They're on the front lines fighting. Uh, well, harvest season for wheat is in June, July, August. Well, if they're still fighting, you're going to lose all of that magnificent volume of wheat. We have 30 million metric tons right now of grain stuck in the Black Sea because you can't move any of the cargo because you have mines in the seas and it's a war zone. So you can you start accumulating all this. We buy, now we feed 125 million people on any given day, week, or month. 
We buy 50% of our grain from Ukraine. Now, I'll be able to find other places to buy it from, but the pricing is going up, 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 up. To give you an example of the economic impact that this will have on our expense balance sheet on a monthly basis, we are now seeing a $71 million increase in operational costs per month. That's $850 million a year. So that means four or five million people won't get fed this year. So if we don't have the money, you're asking us to take food from the children in Chad to give to the children in Ukraine or take food from the children in Ukraine or give to the children in Afghanistan. Please don't put us in that, that pickle, that situation. Now, and we can get further into the weeds of the Ukrainian dynamic and how it's affecting like Egypt, 85% of the grain comes from Ukraine, uh, Lebanon, uh, and I could go on and on and on. And we are now already cutting rations for countries like uh, Yemen. We just cut 8 million people to 50% rations about a month ago. Now we're looking to even scale that down more. Chad, 50% rations. Niger, 50% rations. Ethiopia, 50% rations. And so millions of millions of children and families are now getting half the food they need. And if it continues, it will only exacerbate as availability of food becomes a problem, not just in these poor countries, but what happens when you don't have availability of food in Paris or London or Chicago or Charlotte or wherever it may be. So I've been meeting with the leaders around the world, particularly the G7 agricultural secretary saying, we've got to prepare an offset as fast as we can for the potential of the loss of grain availability. Now, let me add one more complication. All the big silos in Ukraine are full. So if they get a harvest, where are you gonna put the harvest? And so you, you can see we're trying to run through a lot of different issues, provide expertise and guidance to the Ukrainian government, as well as to leaders around the world. We've gotta move these grains as fast as we can, but you can't truck out all that amount of grain that you would ship out. Shipping is a whole different operation, so much higher volume. The trucking out is virtually impossible. It's like a dropping of water into the ocean. So we got some, we got some challenges ahead of us in addition to feeding the people inside Ukraine that we can't reach like in Maripol and places like that. Your Honor, the, 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 a couple of the biggest elements here seem, as you talked about supply chain, but the other thing is, is offsetting or remediating the cost for the price increase because of the supply issue. So where do you get the money? How do you make up for that? I, sus I suspect this has something to do with the new initiative. Uh, I mean, it's all about money. If, if we can end the wars, actually, we can end world hunger. No doubt in my mind about that. I mean, conflict. 80% of our operations are in man-made conflict uh, areas. And so we know how to work in these complex environments. And this one is extremely complex, as you can only imagine. But right now, um, my budget, I, my goal <laughs> when I joined the World Food Program was to put the World Food Program out of business, you know, that we wouldn't be needed anymore. We created resilience and sustainability for families. Instead of giving them food, we give them the opportunity to produce their own food. That was my goal. Well, it's just been war and conflict, disaster one after another, and here we are. And we are $8 billion at least short of what we need. My budget last year was about revenues of about 9.8 billion. Uh, when I started, it was five point something billion. Mm -hmm. So we're going in the wrong direction in spite of 200 years worth of great progress, but now we're going in the wrong direction. Now, having said that, 
There's $430 trillion worth of wealth on planet Earth today. And the billionaires during the height of COVID, uh, their net worth increase was on average $5.2 billion per day increase. So I'm saying, look, just give me a day or two of your net worth increase and we can solve this problem in this short term perfect storm phenomena that we have. Are so they anyway, reacting to it? Are they, do you get some feedback from them? I'm getting a little bit of feedback, but I'm not getting the response I need right yet. Hopefully that Ukraine will stimulate a few to step up in a big, big way because uh, it, it has to be in a big, big way. What? So you tweeted, um, you you followed it, or you you tweeted something to Elon Musk, and I'm not going to get this right, sir, but you, you did re reach out to him. Is it is it and, and and not to oversimplify this, but is is it as easy as getting? And, and let me say this. I'm sorry. Let me go back and say, as governor, you were a huge proponent of, of public-private partnerships, and this seems like there's an extension in in this with you and what you're doing. But can you get one? Let's call him billionaire. If you get one billionaire, will, the, will some of the other dominoes fall? Uh, that's what I'm hoping. I, I've been sort of teasing and, and making proposals out there, but I haven't had anyone take the bait yet. We are getting some uh, attention, though, quite frankly. And, you know, as, as I've said when I was United States governor, uh -huh. you improve the quality of life. Uh, by creating wealth through the private sector. So I'm all for people making money. I, I think that's how you end poverty and hunger. Charity is very important, but it will never be the long-term solution for ending poverty and hunger. It's about systems, private sector engagement, and how can the United Nations and government empower and inspire the private sector to do more, hire more, share that wealth more. And in the last 200 years, when you look, 200 years ago, 95% of the people were in extreme poverty. So the systems that we've designed and built uh, engaging the private sector in the past 200 years is really producing, but you still got that 10% we're not reaching. Now, do you throw the baby out in the bathwater to reach that 10, do you destroy the 90%? No, you don't. So we built great systems, but we don't need to rest now. We still got to reach that 10%. And so with the private sector, you know, a lot of people just want to get, hey, give me money, give me money, give me money. That's not me. Sure. I'm like, look, I want to partner with you, walk alongside you, and let's end hunger together. Quite frankly, I like not, I really not interested in your money as much as your strategic engagement. Now, because we have this incredible perfect storm, I do need a little bit of short-term uh, cash. And it's just a short-term phenomenon. But what I would love to see Elon Musk and Zuckerberg and Bezos and men and women like that to take advantage of their extraordinary intellect and in uh, hunger and help us change systems for the better, because you know they can put a man on the moon, or they can put uh, you know take a take a smartphone and do amazing things with it. I would like to see them use that to end hunger and end poverty, uh, so the world's a safer and better place for everybody. You know, there seems like, and I'm not telling you to, to call on her, sir, but. There seems like there's this new era of billionaire or multimillionaire out there like Mackenzie Scott, Jeff Bezos' former wife, who who took um, quite a bit of money and just pushed it out without restriction and surprised many philanthropies across the United States with multi-million dollar gifts uh, and did it with billions of dollars. So is there is there an opportunity? Do you have a plan to tap into that new style of thinking of wealthy or affluent people to have them 
feel exactly how you describe what's going on in Ukraine and, and utilize their assets and their money? You know, I think that this new generation of CEOs and, and people of wealth are thinking differently than 50 years ago. And I really think they have a much greater uh, social uh, mindset or social responsibility mindset. And again, uh, I think she is just a classic example of that, that type of mindset. And, and you know, uh, Musk had made a decision a couple of months ago to put a, about five or six billion dollars in a particular trust. Uh, and people say, well, that come to you. I said, well, it hadn't yet. And, uh, well, yeah, but I'm like, no, well, look, I'm just glad to see, uh, Bezos and Musk start to engage. They don't, if they don't do it with me, that's okay, but do it with somebody, get out there on the field, help the poor and the needy in such a way that lifts everybody up. And this is what I'm talking to a lot of CEOs and, and, and for shareholders, particularly wall street, you, in a lot of the poor countries, you, you just can't come in and say, I want a quick return on my investment. You've got to take a longer view and be more strategic to help build the systems up. Because if you don't build the systems up, you will never end uh, poverty and hunger in these developing nations. And this is where building systems and changing the way business is done, but not coming in with a quick return on investment mindset, because that just will not work in a lot of these countries. Governor, anybody that has uh, uh, two competing schools like you do and your CV, Clemson and USC, and we all know the rivalry, and you've been able to navigate that all these decades, you bring that to bear with this whole idea that maybe the World Food Program, through its humanitarian efforts, through its acknowledgments and things like the, the Nobel Peace Prize, can be the honest broker of dialogue through serving people. What have you learned about that? How can you be at the center of that place that helps bring together and move forward in a, call it an apolitical environment? You know, um, I've taken advantage probably of every political relationship I've ever had in this job. And one of the things when I was United States governor and in the House of Representatives, usually my best friends were my biggest political enemies on the floor of the House, for example. They would fight it out, but they stood up for what they believed in. And I've always had a, I don't know, a knack for meeting with the enemy on the other side and sitting down and maintaining a friendship amidst the differences. But here at the World Food Program, you know, as the, as the Nobel Peace Prize uh, committee, like we use food as a weapon of peace. Uh, some use food as a weapon of war. We use food to bring people together, nations together, tribes together, factions together. And it's something about the history of food uh, and reconciliation and fellowship with one another. And so we maximize it. When you feed 125 million people, you know, you're maximizing food to bring peace. Cause I've seen what happens when people have food when, versus when people don't have food. And I've actually seen out on the field out there in the areas of conflict where you'll have warring factions in a tribal area or a village area like in Yemen. And we would come in and say, everybody on both sides, put your guns down. We're not feeding you until you put your guns down and come sit down and then we'll feed you. And I've seen that happen firsthand. And so food is a powerful weapon. And, you know, when I go meet with presidents and prime ministers, uh, I'm the food guy. I, they know I don't have an agenda other than helping people. And there's something about that, you know, because you're not coming in there with a political agenda, trying to tell them they're right or wrong. We come in independent, impartial and neutral saying, hey, we're here to do nothing but help the people uh, get food. It's just that simple. Now, what can we do together? And who's who can be opposed to that? Right. 
Yeah, of course. Um, it, it, uh, and you may very well know Isabel Coleman, Deputy Administrator for the U.S. Um, uh, Agency for International Development. I want to read this, and I'm sorry for looking off camera, but I want to read what she said. She said, we may look back on 2022 as the year that broke the back of humanitarian systems as we know it today. And I'd ask you, is it that dire? No, it's worse. Really? It's worse. I had predicted uh, that 2022, we would make a turn, that 2021 was going to be the worst year we would have ever faced. But the world leaders stepped up with us, and we were able to avert famine and mass destabilization and mass migration because the leaders stepped up. We received the funds we needed. But we thought that COVID would be behind us. And so when COVID didn't go behind us, it recycled. Then uh, late last year, I predicted that 2022 would be the worst humanitarian year uh, for crisis uh, at least since World War II. And quite frankly, the humanitarian structure, uh, all the fire trucks are out. All the, they're out for fires. If we have another, if we have a massive like earthquake or volcano right now or something like that, wow, another outbreak of a major war, the system is stretched mm -hmm. to its limits. Uh, it, it can't take much more. It, it really can't. Um, when you go through, and we have about five minutes left, and, and as you as you have these, these, as you talked about prime ministers and presidents, you have these dialogues. Do you feel like the wind is at your back? Are you optimistic as you, as you just called that it's, it's worse than dire this year? But do, do you still see light at the end of that tunnel as you move through? And I know you're going to Ukraine again very soon, but you've been over there so much. What, how do you feel about it? Are you optimistic? You know, I'm a... I'm a glasses is uh, half full kind of guy. I, I'm always an optimist. I really am. And a lot of people ask this question. How do you stay uh, positive or optimistic when you see nothing but devastation and war and, you know, and death and starvation? And, and I'm like, well, you know, I see every human being is special. Made in the image of God. We're all equal, and yet we're all special. And when I'm out there in that field in a war, uh, rubble village, this has been totally torn apart and I see a little child come from behind that rubble with a smile and the bright eyes. It just inspires you to stay focused. And so even amidst all the storms, because I do believe that if we can end these wars, we can we can end hunger. So I'm still positive. Uh, but being positive also means being realistic and responding strategically and effectively. So I'm trying to get the major donor nations for 2022. You can't do everything for everybody. You will have to be strategic. It's like icebergs in front of the Titanic versus a broken wine glass in the bar or broken tea glass in the ballroom. What should you focus on this year? I say focus on the icebergs. We'll get back to the, the smaller matters at hand a little bit later because we just don't have enough money. So if we can be strategic, be effective, we can avoid mass famine. We can avoid destabilization of dozens of nations, and we will uh, truly uh, avoid mass migration by necessity, which, by the way, costs a thousand times more to support someone once they've left the country versus inside the country. You know, you're coming from the global stage of some sharp elbows when it comes to politics. And I know that's not new to you, sir. And South Carolina politics can be kind of a bare knuckle sport to some degree. Do you find it harder, given everything that you're managing now and trying to bring together parties around food security? Is it harder to be moderate now than it was? You know, uh, 
I, I tell my Democrat and Republican friends, I'm really getting frustrated with both parties. I said, you know, you, it seems like both parties are getting more extreme and the average American and average party elected official more in the middle. And uh, I go a little left here and I go a little bit right there. Anybody knows me and knows my politics. But it seems like we're going so extreme in America. And I'm like, look, we need to bring everybody back to the middle. Uh, we really do, because America is just full of just amazing people. But we're letting uh, extremism and propaganda that comes from these not so smartphones sometimes. People are easily manipulated. And I think, you know, I tell, hear people talk about, oh, you know, in the United States, I said, well, hey, whoa, whoa, won't you come with me for a couple of weeks and let me show you people starving to death when what happens when you don't have systems in place, what happens when you don't have civil debate and discourse. And I said, we've got to get back on the United States. We've got to get back on course to civility in the public square because I, I still believe in the American dream and I still believe that America has a lot to give to the rest of the world, but we've got to get our house in order right now, in my opinion. Uh, Governor, we're almost not literally out of time. We have about a minute left, and I wanted to say, as you, as you talk about these things, and I know a lot of people say talk is cheap, um, but 20 years ago, I also want to highlight the fact that you were um, fell on your sword to some degree politically because you came out against, um, and this is not a political statement about Confederates or not, but you were early on in the idea that maybe the Confederate flag should not fly atop, atop the dome in the State House in Columbia. And for better or for worse, um, you took a stand and it ended up uh, in some ways costing you election. So thank you for your leadership in that. Whatever the politics of it are, I think you certainly do eat your own cooking in that way. But thank you for also uh, spending time with us here now. You know, a friend columnist in the United States after I lost an election because of the Confederate flag said, you know, you are the last living casualty of the Civil War. <laughs> I laughed and, and he said, was it worth it? And I said, yeah, it really was. I said, this is not about being politically correct. It really was the right thing to do. I mean, the two flags that ought to fly over the dome are your sovereign flags. And, you know, there's appropriate place for it. And uh, that dialogue was heated at the time, but it really helped, I think, uh, our region of the United States move forward. Governor, thank you. Be safe in your travels and thank you for your service. Thank you, Chris. Major funding for Carolina Business Review provided by High Point University, Martin Marietta, Colonial Life, The Duke Endowment, Sonoco, Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina, and by viewers like you. Thank you.